Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome once again to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Ranjani Donaraj, a U.S. Army War College Fellow at Denver University and your host for today's podcast on Afghanistan. This is the second episode in a three-part series we are doing on Afghanistan, a war that I believe warrants more reflection. Last episode, we discussed building armies. This one will focus exclusively on assessing them, describing military operations, their effects, and whether they achieve their objective is required almost daily due to ongoing operations around the world, including some involving U.S. troops as they battle ISIS in Iraq and Syria, or involving billions of dollars worth of U.S. equipment to support Ukraine in the war with Russia. Without credible and accurate assessments, how can we know whether a strategy is working? Assessing war is a critical facet of the complicated civil-military relationship in the United States, requiring experienced tacticians to distill the art and science of warfare to often inexperienced civilians so they can make informed decisions about resources and strategy. Compounding the significance of the assessment is the often significant investment of blood and treasure. If American lives are going to be lost and billions of dollars are going to be spent, the American public rightly demands accountability. Some would argue that the military did not get the assessment of the war in Afghanistan wrong. Generals Dumford, Milley, and Miller are all on the record saying that once coalition forces left, the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces would deteriorate. The only question was pace. But recognizing catastrophe in the end, without recognition of all the indicators that preceded failure, is only so useful. The culture, process, and decisions that produce the common refrain for the military that this year is going to be different in nearly each of the 20 years of warfare are worth evaluating. Joining me today are Lieutenant General Retired Eric Wesley and Dr. Ben Conable. Lieutenant General Wesley has served on both the practitioner and policy side as Chief of Plans for the International Security Assistance Force under General Milley and on the National Security Council staff as a Director for Afghanistan. Dr. Ben Conable served for 12 years as a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation, publishing reports that included Embracing the Fog of War, Assessment and Metrics in Counterinsurgency, and Will to Fight, Analyzing, Modeling, and Simulating the Will to Fight of Military Units. Gentlemen, welcome to the War Room. Thank you, Ranch. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Lieutenant General Wesley, let's uh, let's begin with you. You served on both the delivery and receiving end of U.S. military assessment of Afghanistan. What do you think contributed to getting it wrong? So, um, so you're open out with a softball there, Ranj. Um, <laughs> your question, but your question is one that, um, you know, it's the reason Ben wrote a monograph. It's the reason you're doing this podcast. So it's not going to be an easy answer. Otherwise we wouldn't be, um, diving into it quite this deeply. 
Um, I think the first thing is we've got to acknowledge that um, we did get a lot wrong. We might have got some things right, as you noted at the top of the hour there, but um, ultimately the policy failed in some significant ways and we can't divorce uh, the military's role in it. So we have to acknowledge it and then acknowledge that we are a contributor to it and assess it. Um, you're right. I was on both sides of it. So I would even include myself in that. You, you know, I, I, there is some aspect of that that we all own some responsibility for. So we have to get into it. But I'll, I, I'm remembering a, a, a quote from a staffer in the White House who happened to be an active duty officer. And he said uh, to the president of the United States, he said, the good news is there's nothing your military believes it cannot achieve. The bad news is they're over-optimistic in terms of the assessments of what they're achieving. So, um, so why does that happen? And I think the answer is partly human nature to want to achieve, which is good. And it's uh, partly in the nature of counterinsurgency, which is a lot less tangible than conventional combat. Conventional combat is a lot like sports. You know who's winning and who's losing. Um, when you're changing cultures and political dynamics, that's hard and it's hard to assess. And I think when you combine those two, human nature and the nature of counterinsurgencies, it becomes very complex and difficult. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's probably the reason it took uh, Dr. Conable 300 pages to try to articulate right. how he would assess coin. But um, Dr. Conable, I know you looked at this very extensively through both a theoretical lens and then case studies of Vietnam, Afghanistan, and how would you diagnose the military's assessment shortfalls? So I'll, I'll echo General Wesley and also acknowledge some of my own failings as part of the assessment process when I was on active duty in Iraq. Uh, I think we all, we all probably would look back and change some of the ways that we approached assessing progress towards strategic end states. So I would argue, first of all, that, you know, there, there are Definitely, there are challenges with the military approach. I'll get into those, but there are serious problems with the the policy at the policy level, and with the way that we formed our strategies. We arguably didn't have a, a strategy in Iraq for almost two years after we completed the invasion until the national strategy uh, for victory in Iraq was published in early 2005, and then in Afghanistan, uh, the strategy kept shifting. Uh, if you go back and look uh, over the course of any number of years and administrations, it, it, uh, it adjusted frequently. And a lot of people would like to say that, you know, we had one consistent objective, which is to prevent Afghanistan from becoming a safe haven for Al Qaeda. Um, but even the way that we approached that was different. So when you don't have a clear vision uh, for what you'd like to achieve, it's very hard to assess progress towards that objective. So it's just a fundamental flaw in at the policy level that already starts the military off with a handicap. But I, I created... Uh, based on a long literature review and, and three cases, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Vietnam, I created seven criteria uh, for a good assessment. Uh, I, I said an assessment should be transparent, credible, relevant, balanced, analyzed, congruent, parsimonious. So transparent, you know, at, at, even if it's classified internally, we should all be telling the truth to each other uh, about what we're seeing and what we're not seeing, what, you know, what we're able to assess and not. That often just wasn't the case credible that we can back up the things that we say with evidence um, and strong argumentation that is not just personality driven, uh, that it's relevant to the to the uh, objectives and to the questions that senior leaders have, um, that it's balanced and that we have different types of data that are all and information uh, that, are, that are all relevant to the problem. 
that we've analyzed it thoroughly and, and, and also been honest in our process there, um, that it, it's congruent with the way that we want to apply our strategy and tactics and parsimonious. And I would argue that this is where we really fell flat in Afghanistan. Um, instead of thinking about the problems we needed to solve and coming up with a process that was logical and, and, and maybe even trimmed down quite a bit, we let it balloon to almost comic proportions. Uh, at one point, I think it was in late 2010 in Afghanistan, there were 2,000 metrics that were required for collection at all levels of command. Uh, and you know, it, the, the burden that that put on subordinate commanders effectively made them all irrelevant. And you saw what occurred in Vietnam and also in Iraq, which was lying. Uh, and then we started to corrupt the the primarily the officer corps, but also to some extent our staff NCOs from the inside. Uh, and I would argue that that corruption carries through to this day. Yeah. So in your monograph, sir, you talked about kind of a disdain for all things that are, are quantifiable or the military's over-reliance on quantifiable assessments, arguing that there's a, a place for qualifiable assessments as well. How do you juxtapose those two and uh, what is the right balance of quantifiable and qualifiable information in an assessment? There, there's a very specific American way to approach any problem. Right? We always think we can measure things. Uh, and whenever we have a problem, we want to apply a measuring process to it. We use the term metrics in a very loose way and to mean everything from a type of data to a, a, you know, a, a standard for performance to um, an entire assessment process. And what we really mean by saying metrics is that we're going to measure something. And I would, and I did argue in that monograph, and I continue to argue now that you cannot measure progress in a complex military operation the same way that you would measure any kind of contained and observable process, like you know running a factory. Um, yet we apply the same rules uh, and the same methods to very structured and observable phenomenon to uh, military operations. It's not a logical approach to assessing progress in a military campaign. It, it, it feeds that corruption that I talked about, that, that inclination to make up information and, and to pretend that we're seeing things that we don't. Uh, and then there's also this belief that numbers are inherently objective and more valuable and words are inherently subjective and therefore less valuable. Um, I'd be happy to get into that later after General West has had a chance to chime in on this, but um, that is just patently not true. Ranj, if I could just reinforce something that Ben just said, I, I, the problem with metrics, in addition to being um, perceived as objective in a very un intangible environment, the other thing that happens is when you establish metrics, they become the objective or the mission in of themselves, as opposed to the mission that you were given. And so you you could become obsessed or consumed with the metric rather than than the mission. Yeah. So if you're not collecting metrics, then then what is the alternative in assessment? Dr. Conable, I know you you discussed the uh, an approach that you characterize as contextual assessment, uh, but how does that compare to what we were doing in Afghanistan? Let me start by saying that that idea that you can't measure your way through a campaign is extraordinarily unpopular. Uh, and every time that I've briefed that to anybody or tried to teach it in a class, I, I get uh, it's just to say it's not a welcome uh, argument. So with that in mind, we do 
use written word. We do use narrative to build our understanding of what's happening in a combat environment. So I would argue if you go back and look at Vietnam and you look at the district level assessments and the provincial level assessments that were written during the Vietnam War, a lot of them are available online at the Texas Tech University Archive. Those are fantastic. And if you can't read those and get a good sense of what's happening on the ground without having to add things up or do body counts or the Hamlet evaluation system or whatever, then you're not reading hard enough. And you're, you're not putting the time and effort in to, to read all of that information. My argument was keep doing that. Have that natural process where commanders bubble up that information from the bottom in written assessments. Keep all of it. So stick to the standards that I that I observed and said, you know, be transparent show all of your evidence. What I think what some people read that as was that I wanted each commander to read 500 pages worth of material. That's not what I was arguing. What I was arguing is let's, let's let it bubble, all bubble up and we can continue to condense that information at the top, but everybody can see every report written underneath and you can include quantitative information in there. You can include metrics at the local level that you think are relevant to local progress or, or lack of progress, but you're not dictating this top down direction as general Wesley points out, thereby changing the approach and the, and the objectives of your subordinate commanders, perhaps unintentionally. Sometimes a math and, and objective assessments indicate a lazy approach um, to assessments. In, in, there was a time in the ter- to the turn of the 20th century, we became consumed with science. Um, it's why we have courses in college called political science or social science. Um, a good portion of life is artistic. It's narrative. It's descriptive. And I think it's lazy to think that everything uh, can be indicated by uh, an objective measurement um, using math, and therefore we have to exercise the ability to be descriptive. Yes, sir. You've been both a brigade and a division commander. I mean, what would you have to have changed or what guidance would you have to have put out or education or additional classes or schooling for your commanders to get that kind of bottom-up feedback in a way that was useful for assessing progress in Afghanistan? Well, I think, first of all, we'd have to become comfortable with, the, with ambiguity. Uh, and, 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 and part of that means you've got to take time to understand nuance. You have to understand, take time to understand dynamics that might not have a, have a metric. And I think I would have preferred as a subordinate commander to have the freedom to describe the environment that I was leading in. Um, the problem is, how do, you, how do you coalesce that? And that's, I think, the work that Dr. Conable has tried to create a hybrid on, on this kind of thing. And I think there's room for that. The beauty of, of um, doing the exercises and the work associated with the descriptive effort is that it flavors the context of your objective metrics. And I think it allows for context in, in, a, in a preferable way. Okay. Earlier, you talked a little bit about this. Uh, you know, many believe the pressure of showing results leads to optimism in reporting. Uh, the cynics, however, think optimism is a means to lie or spin results. That's probably the worst thing that's come out of Afghanistan is that some of the public doesn't believe when our general officers get off up to brief about warfare. General Wesley, in your experience, did do you see or feel pressure to show results? And how do we mitigate against the optimism of military reporting? Yeah, I think, first of all, I think the criticism is fair. It, it, we were in Afghanistan for 20 years, and, and there were many times when you felt 
based on testimony that we were six months from turning the corner um, and we saw the the outcome. So that, again, this is why we have to be transparent and, and have this discussion. But to your question, I would say, let's be clear that we all feel pressure to show results. We should feel pressure to show results. You aren't a competitor, nor are you, a, I think, a responsible leader if you don't impose um, that pressure on yourself. The I think that the issue becomes um, one of uh, the nature of coin, which is intangible, and it leaves room for inter- interpretation. So, so how do you mitigate that? Is is your question? I think, and and this is why Ben's work is so important, or Dr. Conable's work is so important. I think it's important that we have open and honest dialogue, and and the military has to participate and acknowledge its role. But in short, I think it's scrutiny and transparency. Um, Dr. Conable mentioned several elements earlier, but we have to be able to scrutinize our assessments and we have to be willing to be transparent, which means there might need there. You know, I'll say this later, but um, I'll jealously guard the role of a commander, um, but to have scrutiny within his command so that there's a competitive aspect of the information he's reporting, I think, would be healthy to the process. Yeah, you know, we levy a lot of external evaluations on our own units to assess readiness and performance, including external observer controller trainers at combat training centers. So if it's not the advising force assessing the security forces, then who else could it be? Dr. Conable, I don't know if you have a perspective on this. Yeah, I, so the question is, what is, you know, is it, is it appropriate to have commanders grade their own homework? And, and, and if not, then who's going to do it? I mean, both approaches kind of stink, right? I mean, if you're, if you're grading your own homework, you're clearly going to be biased. Um, even the most honest person is, is going to have a, a very clear perspective on what they're doing. Um, and, and if you bring in an external observer, they're not going to have a very clear understanding of what's going on unless they stay there and then they become part of the team. So there's really no way to fix that problem. Um, I would also argue that if, you know, I don't want a commander who's not optimistic. Um, and so, you know, we don't want to get rid of the commander's optimism either. I mean, that's not a good thing. You can't command, you can't be a, you know, General Wesley, I'm sure would say this, you can't be a commanding general and walk around being a sourpuss and tell everybody we're going to fail. I mean, that that's not going to work either. Um, what is in control of the commanders, and I'll get to you, I'll answer this question in a second, is, is setting expectations. Uh, and this goes to the objectives piece. We can't set the policy objectives. That's that's for policymakers to do. But military officers can do a better job setting expectations for what can and can't be accomplished. And if they are under political pressure to create unrealistic expectations or deliver unrealistically within a certain time frame, then it is their responsibility to push back. And if they don't do that, um, then, then it doesn't matter how they do their assessment. They've already failed. In terms of who else might do the assessment, I think having a combination of people doing it from within and without are, is probably a good approach. Um, sorry. So I, th- I think I agree with what Dr. Conable just mentioned, is having some combination. And, and Ron, I'll tell you, I, you and I have never been to a combat training center where we where we didn't have an observer controller team. I'm not saying that we would have the equivalent, but it's this competitive process. And you know, if you were to ever say, "Hey, I'm going to go train my brigade in Fort Irwin, California, and I don't want any observer controllers," you would never be funded for that. It's ironic that we don't have some kind of moral equivalent when we go to combat. Again, not saying we need OCs in combat, but at least um, alternative observers 
or a alternative competitive input, I think would be helpful for scrutiny. So we we essentially had um, you know that external audit in John Sopko as a special investigator for Afghanistan reconstruction. You know he had a congressional mandate, and his team really did yeoman's work serving as an independent and objective auditor of reconstruction efforts in Afghanistan. But you know I don't I don't get the impression that his work carried a lot of weight, and I, I definitely don't get the impression that DoD or Department of State were very amenable to what he had to say. Um, actually, in the final report that they just published on the collapse of the uh, Afghan forces, in the cover letter he put along with it, it said, you know, DOD and Department of State uh, declined to review a draft, uh, really didn't offer any participation, and uh, didn't open the door really to their work. So, you know, how do we how do we get more participation in, in, uh, with our external auditors uh, or buy-in from the military or Department of State for their work? Because, um, I, like I said, uh, Sagar did yeoman's work in Afghanistan. There's quarterly reports from the war. There's also comprehensive lessons learned reports that I'm not sure you know, made it to the right desk in the department to be acted upon. Yeah, I, I had opportunities to work with them uh, on several studies. I was actually quoted in that most recent report that you mentioned. Um, you know, they had their ups and downs, and there are some great people on that team and some that I really respect. But uh, whether it's fair or unfair, and I'm not making this accusation, I'm passing along the perception that, that I gleaned from fellow military officers, was that um, they, they were basically just gadflies and, and everything was negative, right? So that there was very little positive to show for it. I disagree with that to some extent. I think some of it's fair. Look, they're, they're an inspection command. So, you know, that, that's part, it comes with the territory. The other criticism was that Sapo himself was, was you know, um, spotlight chasing. And whether or not that's fair, again, not my role uh, to, to argue one side or the other, but that did also turn people off. Now, does that excuse the Department of Defense or the military services from um, cutting them out of the process? Absolutely not. Uh, and so um, should it have carried more weight? Perhaps. I think, you know, it, it did with Congress, and maybe that's where it counted the most. Yeah, General Wesley, do you have any reflections on that? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not sure it, it didn't carry weight. Um, you know, when I worked at senior levels, um, particularly as it relates to Afghanistan, you can bet the commander was acutely aware of what Mr. Sopko was saying, right? And so it had an impact on how he was going to make his case before Congress based on the reports that, they, that um, he was submitting. The question I might ask is, what if, what if Mr. Sopko's role had been more transcendent? Um, if, if, if as a brigade commander, a battalion commander, if, if, I, had, if I had a moral equivalent of, of a SOPCO around, you know, it, it might have created more competition in the views that existed. So, um, but I also acknowledge what Dr. Connable mentioned, you know, there were some cynical, you know, I remember getting on airplanes coming out of, out of uh, Kabul and looking in the back seat of, you know, or the seat pocket in front of me, and there was an advertisement, you know, report the, the you know infractions on the part of the U.S. military. Call this number one eight hundred whatever it was, and um so that that can create a cynical view. And so you don't you you want to collaborate in that effort. And I'm not convinced if you if you look at it as the equivalent of an IG that there was a collaboration there that was healthy. So that could probably be improved. But I, I don't know that it was um, 
did not carry weight. I would somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Um, let's go on to the next question. Um, you know, we've we've been critiqued for not taking a long view of the war, largely due to year long de- uh, deployments, including the commanders of International Security Assistance Forces until the last two commanders. Um, what do you think needs to change about manning rotations or practice to enable the military to the, have the right temporal reference for assessment, sir? Yeah, this one potentially could be one of your more important questions, Ron. It's, it's, it's actually kind of painful. Um, the coherence of COIN requires a, a longer set of continuities, I think, to be effective. Um, the military seeks to the military leadership seeks to take care of the force, and that's what drives shorter deployments. And I, and I by no means begrudge that. But the question um, might be, if the challenge is so deep that it takes decades um, in order to achieve outcomes, you know, you might want to consider the objectives. If if deploying for more than a year is too difficult, but yet we know, you know, those that don't come home have a pretty difficult deployment. If deploying for a year is too difficult, but yet, lo- but the cost of, 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 of losing soldiers is, is sustainable, I'm not sure there, there is um, congruence there. So um, I'm not, I'll, what I'm suggesting is that I, I, I think that the coherence of COIN requires an investment that oftentimes we might not be willing to pay. And, and I don't, we're willing to pay it in terms of casualties, but we're not necessarily willing to pay it in terms of deployments. And so there is no, you know, look, let's be clear, culture, to, to, to have the concept that you're going to change culture is a pretty audacious and potentially arrogant objective. And, and, and it certainly is not something that you change within a year. And it certainly, if you, even if it's possible, takes an extended period. So these short deployments create, um, I think, a very terminal view of the objectives and outcomes. And the natural tendency is to evaluate yourself on a 12-month period when really you're working on a 20- or 30-year horizon. So you've got incongruent objectives on the part of those deploying forces. So I said some some painful things up front, but I think it has to be measured when considering policy. Dr. Connable, is there is there a way with the current Manning model to have a longer term horizon for assessment or to mitigate against, you know, forces that show up, degrade the force they're assessing only to, you know, upgrade them through the tenure of their one year deployment? Uh, the way we do business now? No. I mean, I think that was we failed in Iraq, we failed in Afghanistan, and we failed in Vietnam, right? I mean, we the, we just had these these short windows. I, but I argue that in all three cases, it it goes back to um, expectation management. You know, I mean, I, twenty to thirty years, I think, is reasonable. I would argue fifty, right? And if you're willing to make that argument up front, then that's an honest argument, right? So if you're going to tell the American people in two thousand and one. Um, that we're going to be in Afghanistan for 50 years, and you set that expectation, you're also setting that expectation with the Afghans. Right? You're telling them, we are not going to run out of here. The investments that we make, we're going to stick around to make sure that those investments are followed up on. The security forces are going to get the patient, persistent presence that they need in order to develop properly. Um, we're going to be here. 
whether or not it's the same people year after year is not is not the most important thing. It does matter. Um, but the fact that we're going to be here means that we're going to assess on a reasonable timeline. And so that sets the assessment cycle. It sets expectations. It helps set the objective. And if the American people reject that, 50 years is too much, we're not going to do it. Well, then you, you just spared yourself a lot of pain and a lot of treasure down the road, right? So um, it's that honesty up front. It, it, it sets everything that comes after it. And if we're dishonest at the outset of our in, in, uh, engagements, then, then uh, there's not much we can do to clean them up after the fact. Okay. One of the intangibles the military missed in their Afghanistan assessment was the security forces' will to fight. And Dr. Connable, I know you've recently published a heuristic for this evaluation. How do you propose this is evaluated going forward? Yes, the the U.S. Army actually invested in seven research projects uh, on will to fight before I left Rand. And they've got another one going right now. Um, So this is really this has been a U.S. Army uh, project from the beginning. They're the ones that saw the uh, the benefit in, in investing and understanding will to fight. So I just want to give a shout out to Army leaders for for making that investment before people really realized it mattered. Right? We've been saying that will to fight matters since we started reading reading Clausewitz, um, but we basically pay lip service to it. Right, and there there is no official definition of will to fight in the U.S. military. Um, there is no will to fight assessment process. Uh, and uh, there's probably not a very good, clear, consistent understanding of what will to fight even is amongst uh, even senior officers. And we interviewed plenty of them, and and there was no consistency. So what that translates to in practice really is will to fight uh, is is paid lip service in uh, counterinsurgency operations. It was paid lip service in Afghanistan. Um, And so in the assessment processes to include the TRAT, the KUAT, and even in the, the last one, which I can't talk about because it's classified, um, all of those assessment processes if effectively either ignored will to fight completely or, uh, or just put a little checkbox in uh, or a narrative box. And there was no direction to anybody on what they were supposed to do, what it meant, how, you, how do you grade it. Um, assessing will to fight is incredibly difficult, uh, and, and it's something that requires uh, training and practice. Um, and we did offer a model and a heuristic uh, to help people think through it. Um, and the Defense Intelligence Agency just created their own will to fight assessment tool. Uh, it's unclassified. It's not posted online, but they but it is out there. And uh, so this is already being adopted. This and they 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 kind of took a lot of what we did at Rand and, and, and adopted it. And and they defined it too. So uh, the way we defined it was will to fight is the disposition and decision to fight, act, and persevere when needed. And if we can assess that in a fighting force, we're not going to have a disaster like we did in in Iraq in 2014 uh, or like we did in Afghanistan in, uh, in 2021. Yeah. I mean, the SECDEF was also critiqued for our failure of assessment of the Ukraine military uh, at the get-go as well. Uh, what can you uh, just provide a couple examples of some of the things you look at specifically to assess will to fight? So General Wesley mentioned culture, and culture is an enormous part of uh, the will to fight assessment process. Uh, understanding the military culture that you're dealing with, understanding the culture from which you're drawing uh, the, the contingent of soldiers, the cadre, 
uh, and your officer core, and then being able to gradually over time shape that culture, or at least identify the weak points in that culture and identify strengths or areas that you can shore up understand what is within and not within your control. So things like developing unit cohesion, esprit de corps, um, the degree to which troops feel that they're supported, helping them understand their mission, organizational corruption and integrity, um, the process by which people are disciplined, um, even civil military relations, which is not necessarily in in, in uh, military control, but it can be when we're doing institutional development at the national level, like we were in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Vietnam. So it's it's a holistic approach to trying to understand human behavior, the disposition uh, uh, that humans have towards behaving in a certain way. You know, it, interesting point, Ron, is, is, and I hate to take us backwards here, but if you, we are going to assess will to fight, and Dr. Connell, you can correct me on this, but ultimately the person, the, the individuals making those assessments will be the command also. So again, we get into this idea of optimism, uh, uh, of being, um, of having an optimal view or optimism in t- towards the the partner unit that we're working with. There's this tendency to have incentive to report it differently than what it may, what may exist. And so even that assessment becomes intangible and difficult because you never want to report your sister unit as not performing or being willing to fight. So it's, a, again, very difficult, intangible assessment. It, it is. It's extremely difficult. And, um, you know, a lot of what we, a lot of the feedback we got was it's so difficult, don't even try. Um, but I don't think that's an option given what has happened, you know, in, in, in our last experience, few experiences here. So, but given that, so one way to deal with that problem, both for will to fight and for just the assessment process writ large, is to avoid consolidating and averaging our assessments down into a single number or a color code. Because that's what we always do, right? We always want to have a color code. And it's, if, it's, if it's red, it's bad. It's yellow, it's medium. And it's green, it's good. Um, or it's a percentage or a digit, you know. And, and all of those things are, in a complex environment, are, are misleading, misleadingly precise. And if they're misleadingly precise, then that means they're not accurate. Uh, so one way to do this is to keep the individual assessment cones, the things that you're looking at, the factors that you're looking at, stop right there and leave them in their in their natural states and look at each one of these factors independently write about it talk about it but don't converge them into a single um, uh, metric or number or color and i would argue that when we do that not only are we being disingenuous but we're also we're creating this odd reverse process where if i give you a yellow color code now i'm going to sit in a room with you and argue about what yellow means Whereas if we had just had a more nuanced and complex conversation to begin with, we never would have had to have that conversation. And Lord knows we've all been in meetings like that once or twice. Well, it's interesting that life is not just red, amber, or green yeah. in our own lives. <laughs> um, For sure. Well, gentlemen, I'm, I'm conscious that uh, we are running out of time here. So last question to you both. Uh, in his work on why operations assessments fail, John Schroden presents a failure cycle in which doctrine and training shortfalls lead to process and products that don't meet commanders' ex- expectations, leading to their lack of interest or attention in assessments and subsequent lack of advocacy. So how do you recommend we we break the assessment failure cycle? 
Yeah, I think um, the first thing from a policy perspective, we have to take to a degree an appetite suppressant. And I think we implied that earlier. There Sometimes there's things, there's nothing we think we cannot do, particularly in the military. And I, th- I think we have to be cognizant of that. Um, the, the education is an option. And I think, uh, ed, and I think Dr. Conable will talk a little bit about this, but educating the, the force on assessments, but also educating policymakers on this effort, which is difficult to do because typically policymakers don't come up in within an institution. And then the final thing, and I think this is something that the military needs to really take a look at is you have to double down on courage. Um, because sometimes this stuff takes a lot longer than your tour in Iraq or your tour in Afghanistan. And you have to be, you just have to, um, be willing to absorb that. And, and that takes incredible leadership courage. And, and I think we have to double down on that. I'm not convinced that we demonstrated that to the degree we'll need to in the future. If we think we're going to take on counterinsurgency again in a large way. Yeah. And I don't even think this conversation is limited to counterinsurgency. I think even right now, looking at what's going on with Ukraine and Russia and our objectives there, I think that, uh, it's clear that we're going to have to. Uh, it's going to take some some further evaluation and, and scrutiny of of our objectives, and then some honest assessment whether we can achieve that. One of one of the mistakes that we made starting during uh, World War II, really, um, you know, so Secretary of Defense McNamara was an operations assessment analyst in World War II, uh, evaluating bombing missions and optimizing the bombing missions with with. Uh, quantitative formula is outsourcing the assessment process. So to John's point, and, and I've spoken with John about this you know, quite a bit, is this idea that it's, it's an add-on burden um, or task, and it's not something that is part of the process or part of the cycle. We, we have, a, we have a, a planning process that has assessment in there, but really, when it comes to assessment, we farm it out. We give it to an officer as a secondary duty, or we give it to a small team of people who are not part of the command team uh, or, 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 you know, uh, ancillary to it. That is, you're just teeing yourself for, up for failure there. And I just, I won't mention the course, but I just taught at a, a, a command level course uh, uh, or staff level course uh, where, you know, I taught the assessment class and it was uh, two hours out of the entire curriculum, right? And and it's there's a zero sum game there. Do you do you spend a week teaching people how to do assessment? I don't think that's a good answer either, right? The the trick is taking it away from specialists and and stop the process of outsourcing and just make it a normal part of what we do. Actually, take that that planning circle, the cycle, and and just actualize it uh, and make assessment normal, not something that's going to break you because you have to spend all your time on it, um, but force the staff officers to make it as a part of their routine. Fantastic. We have, we have culture of that too, Dr. Carmel. And, you know, the S2 or the red team has been incentivized to portray something contrary to what the commander might want to hear. My, my red team was not always, you know, you know, my favorite staff officer, but, but if you build it into the culture, I think it's, it's conceivable. Sorry, Ranj, go ahead. No, and it's not only red actions and blue actions, but also white actions. I mean, the actions of the civilians on the battlefield as well, uh, or your assessment of them. 
Well, gentlemen, that is all the time we have today. So I really appreciate your participation. I, I appreciate the time. I know that you guys are both really busy. And thank you both for your service as well. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Ranj. Good to be here. Afghanistan taught us many things. Notably, we can't assume our actions will have the intended effect, thus the need for assessments. The doctrinal assessments, how we train and educate leaders to do this, and whom else we invite to create competitive views, are starting point to remedy this challenge. And again, I don't think this is limited to counterinsurgency. Assessment of modern-day warfare in multiple domains will have effects we can't yet envision. Warfare is not a closed network of known inputs and outputs. The enemy gets a vote, the civilian population gets a vote, and all too often, the other adversaries influencing from afar will vote as well. Please subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you again. Until next time from the War Room, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Ranjani Donaraj. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.